0: Turn in your Bibles this morning to Exodus, chapters 19 and 20 is our passage today, Exodus 19 and 20. I'm going to start our time together by reading through the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20. You'll see the words on the screens in front of you. Listen to the word of this God who we've just sung our exaltation to. Will you pray with me again this morning? Father, we thank you for giving us your word, for revealing your character in your commandments, in your law, in your, in your Bible. And We pray that you would help us to be changed into the image of your Son so that we can be holy as you are holy, so that we can embody the truths that we see presented here. We pray that you would do that work in us this morning as we continue to study this your word. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Exodus 19 and 20. I don't know if you remember, but when we started this series in the Pentateuch a year ago, or something like that, we actually started here in Exodus 19. And the reason that we did that is because we wanted to point out that, that uh, before God gave his people the law, including the book of Genesis, he brought them here to Mount Sinai. It's here at Mount Sinai that God begins to reveal himself to his people. And, and so it's, it's while the children of Israel are wandering after this in the wilderness that God inspires Moses to write the book of Genesis to help Israel understand precisely who he was. We don't know exactly how much truth about God had been passed down from parent to child uh, over the years uh, that the Israelites were in Egypt. Uh, presumably some things about Yahweh were known to them, passed down to them. But surely over the course of the 400 years or however exactly long it was that they were in slavery in Egypt, even those truths about the one true God had been diluted, had been contaminated to some degree by the surrounding pantheistic culture of Egypt and, and the gods and goddesses that they worshipped. And so there wasn't always a whole lot of, of true knowledge about the one true God. And so it's as the Israelites are wandering in the wilderness that Moses inspired by the Holy Spirit, gives them the truths that we've been studying in Genesis. And then he's, of course, relating to, to them and to us, uh, recording for, for them and relating to us uh, the, the story of their exodus from Egypt and, and everything else. And so that's why we started this series here at Sinai in Exodus 19. And now we are returning here to Exodus 19 and seeing God revealing his character to his people. God redeems his people so that he can reveal his character to his people. That's that's how that happens. God redeems his people so that he can have relationship with his people. God begins relationship with his people, and then he gives them his laws to obey. And it's important to keep that order right in our minds, isn't it? He doesn't give us his laws to obey, and then only once we have successfully obeyed his laws does he redeem us or enter relationship with us. No, he redeems us, enters relationship with us, and then gives us his laws to obey. And that's what we see here. God redeems his people so that he can reveal his character to his people. As we look at these two chapters, Exodus 19 and 20, we're going to see that he reveals uh, a couple of majestic things about himself. He reveals his majesty, and he reveals his holiness And so we're just going to look at Exodus 19 and 20 along those two parameters. In Exodus 19, we we see him revealing his majesty. And in Exodus 20, we see him revealing his holiness. God redeems his people so that he can reveal his character to his people. So let's see how he does that. Let's see how God reveals his majesty in chapter 19. It says, On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt on that day, they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. In these verses and the verses that follow in chapter 19, we see God revealing his majestic plan. We see him revealing his majestic separateness, and we see him revealing his majestic power. He reveals his majesty here. He reveals a plan to his people as he brings them to the mountain. He he gives them a new relationship, doesn't he? He says in verse 4, You know what I did to the Egyptians. You saw what I did to the Egyptians and how I brought you on eagles' wings to myself. Now, therefore, if you will obey my voice and keep my covenant, you will be to me a treasured possession. There's a new relationship that God establishes with the people of Israel that he summarizes in that reminder to Israel what he had done for them. Their relationship with God is contrasted to God's judgment against Egypt first. He says, You saw what I did. And in that little phrase, we are brought to remember all of the plagues. All of the plagues, culminating in the death of the firstborn, culminating in the Passover. We're we're brought to remember the crossing of the Red Sea and the defeat of the Egyptian military. He says, you saw all that I did to Egypt. And so the first thing we learn about this new relationship that God is initiating with his people is that it is contrasted with his judgment against his enemies, against his judgment against Egypt. This new relationship is catalyzed catalyzed by God's loving rescue of them. I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. That language of bearing up on eagles' wings, there's a certain element of of speed that's implied there. But there's more than that. there's, There's a nuance of loving care. God is caring for his people. He's loving them, bringing them to himself because he loves them. And you see the contrast there. It's judgment against Egypt. It's loving care for his people. And all that is supposed to lead to a characterization on the part of his people of obedience. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey. So here's the relationship that God establishes with his people. It's one that is contrasted with his judgment against Egypt. It's catalyzed by God's loving rescue of them, and it's characterized by their obedience. Does that sound familiar? That's our relationship with God, isn't it? Our relationship with God is characterized by all the same things. Our relationship with him is also contrasted to his judgment of the world. It's also catalyzed by his loving rescue of us through the work of Christ, and it ought to be characterized by our obedience to him. And you hear that, and you go, well, I'm not... I'm you know, some of that I see, but, but, but do we really see God's judgment of the world contrasted to his relationship with us? Is the world being judged? Is the world out there being judged the way God judged Egypt with the plagues and everything? Or maybe, we say, maybe maybe we say the world is being judged, the world is going through a lot of hardship, a lot of terrible things in the world, but we're going through it right along with them, so there's no contrast, is there? But we have to look a little further down the road to see the contrast. We have to take a little bit of a wider view of history and realize that the time is coming when we will see our relationship with God contrasted to the judgment with the world. There is a time coming when Jesus will return to judge the living and the dead. And we, and we see that in Scripture. And so we we, we we see the contrast of our relationship with him from the judgment of the world. And and then that contrast works itself backward into our lives now. So that even as we see the terrible things that happen in the world, the hardship and the pain and the suffering, we as the followers of Jesus understand that that we experience it in a different way. Not that we don't experience it. That there's a difference in how we experience it, isn't there? Because we have that final hope, that final relationship that we look forward to. And so our relationship with God is certainly contrasted with God's judgment of the world. It's characterized by God's loving rescue of us. He bore us on eagle's wings to himself. He bore you, brother and sister, to himself. When the Holy Spirit came to you and revealed the truth about Jesus to you, That was God doing for you what he describes himself as doing for Israel here. He bore you up on eagles' wings and bore you to himself. And so, as a result, we also ought to be those who are characterized by obedience. If, then, you will obey my voice and keep my covenant. God gave them a new relationship. He gave them a new identity. He says, you will be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. A treasured possession. Have you thought about that language? Have you, have you ever meditated in that phrase? It's a phrase that gets repeated half a dozen times through the Pentateuch. God regularly calls his people that, his treasured possession. It's the language of inheritance, actually. There are several, several words in Hebrew that get used to convey this idea of inheritance or treasure or possession or portion. But they all are, are getting at the same idea that God's people are his special possession, his inheritance. Even that language of inheritance, though, doesn't always get at the, the, the main point that God is trying to get at about his people. You know, we understand what an inheritance is, but for us, more often than not, an inheritance is, is kind of a mundane thing. I mean, for, for, for most of us in, in our culture, at the best, maybe we inherit a house or something, or, or at the worst, we might inherit uh, problems from our, from our loved ones who've, who've gone on to be with the Lord, right? But what you have to think of when you consider the inheritance along the lines of what God is saying here is the inheritance of the person whose parent dies and leaves them a multi-billion dollar estate. It's that kind of inheritance. It's a treasured possession. And beloved, God says that about you. His people are his treasured possession. And understand, he is not just saying it about Israel. He is saying it about all of us. And it's something that gets said about his people all through the the revealed scriptures to us. It becomes a very important theme that weaves its way through the entirety of scripture, that God's people are his inheritance, his treasured possession. Listen, Exodus 34, 9. The people say, pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your inheritance. Deuteronomy 4.20, the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, to be a people for his own inheritance. Psalm 78.71, Jacob, his people, and Israel, his inheritance. Micah 7.18, who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? Over and over, again. this is just a few passages, over and over again, God calls his people his treasure, his treasured possession, his portion, his inheritance inheritance. You are his riches. And this is such an important idea that Paul, as he writes to Gentile believers, can say that under the new covenant, this promise that God's people will be his treasure, his inheritance, is expanded beyond the boundaries of ethnic Israel to all of those who come to God through faith in Jesus Christ. And so Paul says in Ephesians 1.18 that God had the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. He uses the same inheritance language for the church, which is why I have the authority of scripture behind me when I say to you, whether you are Jewish or Gentile, you are God's treasure. You are his inheritance. This is your new identity in Christ. God gives his people a new identity. This is part of his majestic plan. And he gives them with that a new mission. You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. A kingdom of priests and a holy nation. A little bit later on in Exodus and and then through the Pentateuch, we're going to see that God selects one of the tribes of Israel right, the tribe of Levi, who are going to produce for him the priests of the Israelite religion. But here he says the whole nation, in some sense, is a kingdom of priests. The role of the priest in Israel, and I think by extension the role of Israel in the world, was meant to be twofold. It was meant to, on the one hand, convey to God, to represent to God the needs of the people, to be the intercessor for the people with God, but also to convey the truths about God to the people. The priests were instructed with the role of teaching the people the law. Instruction. And so, when here God says, You will be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, He is saying that among all the peoples of the earth whom He has just announced are all His. Israel, his treasured possession, are to to be a nation of priests. They are to represent him firstly through their holy status as, as sanctified, a holy nation, but also through their teaching of his law. What the Levites were to the nation of Israel, the nation of Israel was meant to be to the world. This is their new mission. As God reveals this plan to them, he reveals this new relationship and new identity and new mission. And that mission, by the way, is, is passed on to us. Just as Paul incorporates the inheritance language to describe Gentile believers in Christ, so Peter does the same thing with this kingdom of priests language. 1 Peter 2.5, you yourselves are like living stones being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. Some people think that Peter wrote his letters to Jewish Christians exclusively, but I don't think that's correct. There are letters like that in the New Testament, the book of Hebrews, for example. But I think Peter's writing to all Christians, Jewish and Gentile alike, and that, so that's what he's saying to all Christians. You are a holy priesthood. Peter's saying that's our mission now too. We are supposed to be representatives of God to the world. We are supposed to be teaching the world the truth about God. And so the question for us is do these things characterize us? Are we a kingdom of priests? Are we a holy nation? I'm not talking about America, I'm talking about the church, I'm talking about the people of God. Are we a holy nation? Are we a kingdom of priests? Do we realize that we are God's treasured possession? This is God's plan for us. He reveals this majestic plan here at Sinai to his people. He reveals his majestic separateness as well. As chapter 19 goes forward, we read these words in verse 10. The Lord said to Moses, go to the people, consecrate them today and tomorrow. Let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people, and you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, Be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. God made provisions for the people to remain separate. The image here of Mount Sinai, if you can get it into your head, is of the entire mountain being off limits. I mean, can, can you picture a mountain, a whole mountain, that's in, encompassed in smoke, fire, and thunder and lightning? That's what's going on here at Sinai. And God says, set limits. You know, maybe these Israelites who who have grown up in Egypt and and gotten used to the idea of, of approachable deities will think that they can approach me, and they cannot. God says, make sure they don't come. Make sure they don't come up onto the mountain. Why? Why? God, I believe, is preparing the people for the truth that they could never hope to be good enough to not fear for their lives in God's awesome presence. And that's certainly what we see happening going forward. God reveals His majestic separateness and He reveals His majestic power On the morning of the third day, verse 16, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain, a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And at the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. God visits the earth in a storm theophany That's the theological term for it. It means that God comes and he's accompanied by all of these, these elements of the storm, the thunder, the lightning, the earthquake, the fire, the smoke. In fact, you can trace these storm theophanies through Scripture as well. God appears in many ways through Scripture. Sometimes he, he appears in the guise of a human being, either singly or accompanied by others. But it seems like when God shows up, in the fullness of his majesty in the earthly creation, it looks something like this. It's almost as though the created order cannot handle the presence of the eternal creator in its midst, and it naturally erupts in storm and thunder and fire. can't handle it. God is too great for it, you see. The entire mountain is, is sheathed in smoke and storm. Storms make a big impression on us, don't they? I mean, we live near one of the Great Lakes. We get storms, yeah? Thunderstorms, sometimes severe ones, the ones that where the thunderclaps make the walls rattle. Some of us live closer to the lake than others, and we get the wind, too, that knocks trees down and And makes it hard to sleep at night because it's so loud. Storms make a big impression on us. God makes a big impression on us. He ought to. What what goes through your mind when you consider the reality of God? When God actually shows up, He changes things. Things can't handle Him, The, the created order can't handle His presence. In fact, even one of the old Hebrew names for God, El Shaddai, probably is getting at this very idea. The name El Shaddai means the God who is like a mountain. It doesn't mean the God who is the God of the mountain, which might make sense since God seems to favor Mount Sinai and he comes and he appears at Mount Sinai. But that's not what El Shaddai means. He's not the God of the mountain. He's the God of the whole earth. El Shaddai seems to convey the idea that he's a God like a mountain. It seems like what the Hebrews were trying to get across is this idea that, you know, if you can imagine looking out at the horizon and it's flat, it's horizontal, but then in the middle of it jutting up is a big mountain that just breaks the plane of the horizon in an unmistakable and unmissable way. In the same way, God, when he shows up in our lives, breaks into it in a way that we don't understand, in a way that we hadn't anticipated, and in a way that is unmistakable. El Shaddai, he's the God who's like a mountain in our lives. He's the God who very creation cannot handle his presence. He's revealing his majesty here. God redeems His people so that He can reveal His character to his people. How do we relate to such a? God? Do we relate to this kind of a God with familiarity, with self-confidence? Surely, God will, will um, consider that it's the thought that counts, right? And if we continued on through the end of chapter 19, we would see God reminding Moses again, be sure to remind the people, don't come up the mountain. Moses says, I already told him, man. And God says, no, go back and tell him again. You don't understand. Is this a God who we can approach easily? Is this a God with whom we can be overly familiar do we come in our own methods and ways? God, as he reveals his majesty and his holiness, I think has something else in mind. And so we come to chapter 20 and we see the giving of the Ten Commandments. And I'm not going to read through these again. We already did that at the beginning of our sermon time today. But I do want to point out to you a few things about these Ten Commandments before we move on. There's a lot of ways that people uh, organize the Ten Commandments into manageable chunks so they can think about them well. And I want to suggest to you that in the first four Ten Commandments, we see God relating truths about himself and his holiness. And in the second six commandments, we see God revealing his character and applications for the fact that God is holy. Here's here's, here's what I mean. In the first commandment, God says, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. You shall have no other gods before me. God is revealing the fact that he is, he is alone. He is solitary. There are no other gods. Understand, he's not saying it's okay for you to have other gods as long as none of them are as important to you as I am. That's not it. It might look like that. Have no other gods before me. Make sure I'm the most important. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is there aren't any other gods. There should be no other gods in my presence. I'm the only one. This is a point that God makes uh, throughout Isaiah. A few years ago, we went through the book of Isaiah, if you remember. And in the second part of the first half of Isaiah, this is a theme that gets repeated again and again and again. I alone am the Lord. There is none else. There is no one else. He is solitary. In the second commandment, we see the fact that God is the only reality. You shall not make any carved images. All of those idols, all those images are fake. They're imaginary. They're pretend. They're man-made. But God is real. God is holy. In the third commandment, we learn that the name of the Lord is not to be taken in vain. He is separate. He's not common enough to be spoken of flippantly. Sometimes we read that third commandment and we say, okay, that means you're not supposed to say, oh my God, or you're not supposed to use the name Jesus Christ as an expletive or or, or or, 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 or an exclamation. And I think those things are true, and I think that we should practice that as Christians, we should avoid doing that, we should teach our kids to avoid doing that, but that's not the main point of this commandment. The main point is that God is so holy that even his name needs to be taken seriously. His name ought not to be used in the making of vows that are broken the next day. In the fourth commandment, we see God reminding the people of the Sabbath day to keep it holy. We've already seen God commanding his people to rest a few chapters ago. And the same principle is is here too. God is holy solitary and real and holy, but he is also reliable. In order for his people to be willing to take a day when they do no work, they have to trust him to provide. And he's saying, I am trustworthy. I am reliable. Trust me. These are truths about God. How do we see the principles behind these commandments ourselves? How do we recognize the holiness of God? Do we see these things? And then do they change our lives? Do they impact the way we relate to one another? And the last six of the Ten Commandments are the applications of those things. The fifth commandment, honoring your father and mother, reveals a belief that God is the true father. The sixth commandment of not murdering reveals a belief that God is the giver of life and is entirely sovereign over it. We aren't. The seventh and eighth commandment, regarding not committing adultery and not committing theft, respectively, reveal the belief that God is wise and that his gifts are wise and correct. And so we ought not to take the gifts that he gives to others. The ninth commandment, regarding not lying, reveals the belief that God is the truth and is honored by truth and is not honored by Deception. And the Tenth Commandment, about not coveting, reveals the belief that God is enough for us. We don't need to desire anything else. All of these things, all these commandments reveal truths about the holiness of God. And you might be thinking, you know, we, we went through those Ten Commandments awful fast. Did you really do them justice? And the answer is no, we didn't do them justice, and that's why we're going to take 12 weeks to go through the Ten Commandments, starting next week. Yes, I said 12 weeks to go through the Ten Commandments, right? I'm I'm serious, We're, we're, we're going to do that. We're going to take each commandment one by one and talk about what it means and how it reveals the holiness of God. And at the beginning and end of it, we're going to spend some time in Romans so that we understand how we're supposed to think about the law of God. And now some of you are at the other end of the spectrum thinking, all right, you, you didn't spend enough time on them today, but 12 weeks seems like an awful long time. Right? Isn't there some kind of middle ground somewhere there, preacher? Here's, here's why we're going to do that. The reason that we're going to take time and work our way slowly through the Ten Commandments, and actually, uh, the bigger picture than that, the reason we're carefully through the Pentateuch as a whole, including the book of Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy down the pike, is because this is God revealing himself. This is God revealing his character, his nature. The reason we're going to take time to look at the law of God is because of what Psalm 1 says. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. You understand, when the psalmist wrote that, he's talking about this, the law of God. We're going to spend time going through these because of what it says in Psalm 19. The law of the Lord is perfect reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by keeping them is your servant warned, In keeping them, there is great reward. David wrote those words, and he wrote them about the Ten Commandments and the rest of the law. He says, this is is more desirable than gold. It's sweeter than honey. There's great reward here. Do we believe that that's true, or would we rather go on to things that tickle our ears a little bit better? Psalm 119, 18. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. I love your law. Your law is my delight. I know that we read those words and we go, yeah, but that was David. That was a crazy psalmist. It's not true of us. We're not expected to find the law of God beautiful and wonderful, but brothers and sisters, I think we can. I think there's a way to do it, and the way to do it is to see it as a revelation of the character of God and ultimately to see it as an arrow pointing forward to the one who fully reveals the character of God, Jesus, his son. And so that's what we're going to be doing as we go through the Ten Commandments over the course of the next few months, and it's going to be interspersed with other things like our missions emphasis Sunday and Easter and other special events, things like that. But we're going to take our time and we're going to consider the law of God and see how he shows his character and his nature in it. God reveals his holiness in these ways. He reveals his fearfulness. Look at Exodus twenty, eighteen, as we were wrapping things up at the end of Exodus twenty. Now, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us, and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear. For God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off, while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. And the Lord said to Moses, Thus shall you say to the people of Israel, You have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven You shall not make gods of silver to be with you, nor shall you make for yourselves gods of gold. An altar of earth you shall make for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. If you make me an altar of stone, it shall not be built of hewn stones. For if you wield your tool on it, you profane it, and you shall not go up by steps to my altar that your nakedness be not exposed on it. Why does he care about any of that? Why does he care about what the altars look like? Why does he care about whether it's built with stones that are cut or not? Why does he care about whether there are steps on it or not? Ask the bigger question. Why, is, why doesn't God, when, when you read about how the people saw the fire, the thunder, the lightning, and they were afraid, why doesn't God come and say, hey, everybody, you got the wrong idea. Come on, it's okay. You can trust me. You can approach me. Why doesn't he do that? Wouldn't you rather have a God that did that? but he doesn't. I didn't write it. He wrote it. This is him. God says, it is good for you to be afraid of me. I am fearful. Not only that, but God says, the very way you worship me has to reveal the fact that you are not in control of it. If you're going to worship me on an altar, which you're going to have to do, he says, just use earth or stones. There's nothing you can do to make the altar pleasing to me. Anything that you do to try to make it special makes it worthless. What matters to me is you. you see, it is showing the people that they are right to fear him. God confirms their rightness in being terrified. God is holy, and He demands the same from His people. But that creates the whole problem, doesn't it? If Exodus 19 and 20 teach us anything, it's that his people aren't holy enough to approach him. If these chapters teach us anything, it's that God is too fearful to be approached. Is that the end of the story? God has redeemed Israel to be a people utterly terrified of him and destined to constantly fall short of his standards. The end. Have a good day. Is that it? No. I mean, within the Ten Commandments themselves is enshrined the idea that God delights to show mercy and grace. He shows his steadfast love to thousands. And the implication of that is to thousands of generations of those who love him and keep his commandments. So how do we we understand this? What are we supposed to take away from this? I think the answer to that is found in later Scripture right? Because as the history of Israel went on, as, as God's people went on with their lives as a nation, what began to happen was that this uh, this giving of the law became enshrined in uh, and, and associated with the Feast of Weeks, which is one of the feasts that we're going to talk about later on in the Pentateuch. And that Feast of Weeks uh, got, got combined with this celebration of the giving of the law, which a occurred about 50 days after the Passover, and they began calling it by its Greek, in Greek that's Pentecoste, which we have in English as Pentecost. And in the book of Acts, we see something that happened on the first Pentecost after Jesus died and rose from the dead. Listen to these words from Acts 2. When the day of Pentecost had arrived, understand, by the time of the first century, Pentecost had become the day when they celebrated the giving of the Ten Commandments at Sinai. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. The connections between Exodus 19 and Acts 2, the connections between Sinai and Pentecost, once you see them, are impossible to miss. Consider that 50 days before Pentecost, the Passover lamb, the true Passover lamb, had been sacrificed. Jesus had died on the cross. And then he spent 40 days after he rose from the dead, ministering to his disciples and being seen by others. And then he ascended. Then he went up the mountain, didn't he? He went up the true mountain, not Mount Sinai, as Moses had done. He went up to heaven. And after he has gone up to heaven, what happens? But the law is given. Not the law written on tablets of stone, but the law written on human hearts. The Holy Spirit comes and is accompanied by all the same things. Storm theophany writ small in acts. Wind and fire. The house shaking. This is Pentecost. Pentecost. This is Sinai revisited. But now it's not the law given on tablets of stone. Now it's the Holy Spirit in our hearts. This is what was promised in the New Covenant. I will write my law on their hearts. How does God write his law on our hearts? His Spirit. His Spirit comes and changes our hearts. This is the answer to our question. It is true that in ourselves and left to ourselves, we are not holy enough to approach this God whose very existence causes reality to fall apart. We cannot approach this holy God, we cannot live up to his standards, but when he comes and approaches us, when he by his spirit indwells our hearts and changes us, now we can have this relationship with him. Now we can have this new identity as his treasured possession. Now we can fulfill the mission of being kingdom of priests and a holy nation. God redeems his people so that he can reveal his character to his people. He redeems his people so that his character can be worked out in the lives of his people. Have we seen this God? Have you been changed by the majesty and the holiness of God? Have you encountered him in the person of his son, Jesus Christ? Has his spirit changed your heart? I leave you with that question this morning. Consider it in silent thought, and in prayer. And then we will worship together once more.